0: From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. North Carolina ranks ninth in the United States for human trafficking. That's a move up the ladder in the wrong direction from 11th place, according to the state's Department of Administration. Some of the reasons the Tar Heel State draws traffickers, officials say, are the interstate highways, a large and transient military population, agricultural areas with a high demand for cheap labor, and gang populations on the rise. The Cape Fear region sees a large share of this type of illegal activity for all of those reasons, including the tourism economy, thanks to the beaches. When we talk about human trafficking, we're referring to two types, forced labor and sex trafficking. Children are often victims of both. North Carolina officials say teenagers who become victims of sex traffickers have likely already experienced physical and or sexual abuse. So who's helping the victims? And what do members of the public, people who don't regularly or knowingly come into contact with victims, what do they need to learn to help? Today, we're going to talk with two people who head up local nonprofits for exactly this reason. We'll hear from Leanna Stoker, Executive Director of First Fruit Ministries, in the next segment. But first, A Safe Place launched in 2012 by Melissa Umstead to provide shelter and services for victims escaping specifically from sexual slavery. Dawn Ferrer is Executive Director of A Safe Place, and she joins me now. Don Ferrer, welcome to Coastline.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's good to have you with us. Now, when we spoke, you said that victims of sex trafficking are actually a very misunderstood population.
1: Why Why is that? Yes, that, that is the case. I think a lot of people feel that women have gotten themselves in this situation, that they're choosing to be in this situation. They don't have that full understanding that it is their life experiences, it's their trauma, could be their substance use that led them down that path to that path to exploitation. And I think another thing people don't understand is it can impact anyone. Um, you know, I think we have images of a certain type of person that would be vulnerable, but it really can be anyone. It can be any age, any gender, any socioeconomic level. Um, anybody can be can be vulnerable to that.
0: You know, we hear that, but it's still kind of hard to believe that this can affect any level of our kind of socioeconomic structure. Let's take an example of somebody who's raised in what we would consider a relatively stable home, even though I think parents, parents traumatize their children all the time, <laughs> even the best ones. Um, the good ones just save up for a therapy fund later. But what... What is it that makes a person vulnerable to a, a human trafficker when they seem to have everything in, that's good in
1: life? Yeah. I think, you know, if you're looking at someone that's under the age of 18, um, they are struggling with self-esteem issues. They're struggling. They could be struggling with fitting in. Again, their family may may seem relatively normal, and they may not have experienced the abuse that others have but they're still struggles so they're still they're on social media they're sharing posts that are making it realize that they are they're being vulnerable and you know predators traffickers know know who to target and they look they look for those signs you know it could be a teen that is struggling with developmental disabilities or maybe they have a mental health issue and their their family may be staying right on top of it but they're still, again, they're in that vulnerable position, you know, to the words of a trafficker.
0: And one of the things that you said to me, you don't know how much the numbers have actually changed in terms of victims, but you have seen a spike in online activity. And are you are you talking about just in the last couple of years, or do you mean— over the course of the last decade.
1: Yes. Really, since COVID, with the number of kids that were forced to be online, you know, for school, a lot of them unsupervised, parents had to go back to work, Um, we saw a huge increase in that online predatory activity. doesn't necessarily always lead to trafficking, but it could lead to that sexual abuse. Um, Specifically, you know, sextortion rates are through the roof, according to our local FBI, um, there's just so many kids online um, that, that are just not aware of, of the dangers and kind of what those red flags are. Oh, and
0: for those who haven't heard the term before, mm-hmm. sextortion, what is that?
1: So sextortion is when an individual is in the online world, targeting usually targeting minors or young adults, and what they're doing is they're trying to gain their trust very quickly, And during that time, they will then ask for an intimate picture, an intimate video. And kids today are sharing those things way too easily. Um, Locally, we had a victim as young as six. Um, According to the FBI, the normal rate would be a couple a month, and they're seeing anywhere between five to ten a week. We've gone sextortion. from a
0: couple of sextortion victims a month in this region mm-hmm. to how many a to week? To
1: anywhere between five to ten a week. And what these individuals are doing, the difference here is they're not trying to meet the child, they're trying to extort the child. So they will then ask for money. And they'll say threats like, if you don't give me this money, you know your parents will know what you did, or I'll show them to your school, those kinds of things.
0: You'd think that at this point, the internet isn't new. <laughs> and I mean, even in the in the dawning of the internet, I think there were chat rooms, you, you know, predators could, could find victims. Absolutely. Why is it that we have this generation, I, I don't want to say of <clears throat> oversharers because that's a negative characterization that isn't fair, but why are we still all kind of unsophisticated about how the internet is used and what that really is, you know, access to a kid.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually a really good question. Um, you know, I do these trainings for parents on this online safety and, um, you know, what that looks like. And a lot of them, they don't want to ask their kids questions. You know, they don't want to be that parent that you truly need to be in the age of the internet. It is getting passwords. It's making sure you know, all the computers are in a common area. It's collecting everything at night, you know, not letting your child have their phone in their room. You know, it's those kinds of things. And I think p- some parents just aren't taking that extra step. Um, I also think people bury their head in the sand and think that, well, it's not going to happen to me. You know, We're a good family. Um, we're raising our, our children well it won't happen to me. And, you know, the thing that they have to understand, especially with kids that have smartphones and tablets, that predator can have 24-7 access to your child. And I think they don't truly understand the magnitude of that.
0: So what kind of a parent? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, like having all the passwords Mm -hmm. to kids' accounts and having computers in common areas and collecting all the devices before a kid goes to bed so the kid can't be in Mm -hmm. his or her bedroom communicating with with anyone. But why is that something that's hard for parents to do? What are they afraid (laughs) they're going to be doing to their kids? Is it, it... why do they worry so much about invasion of privacy there?
1: I wish I had the answer to that. Um, I had a discussion with a woman, and she came up to me after one of these presentations. She had a 13-year-old daughter. She said, my daughter's beautiful. She has lots of friends. Um, she's becoming a little secretive. She's spending a little more time in her bedroom. Um, but I'm afraid to ask her things. I'm afraid she's going to be upset that I'm invading her privacy. Yes, I can and understand And I reminded that. her, she is only 13. You are her parents. You do have the right to know what's going on. And I think it starts with having that open communication across the board, talking about your kids, asking them about their day, you know, making sure your communication is always open so they can then feel comfortable coming to you to tell you these things. But yes, kids are entitled to a certain amount of privacy, but it's that old expression, you know, as long as you're under my roof, you know, I do think that you have a right to know what's going on.
0: So it's really important then for parents to worry less maybe about being their kid's best friend. Exactly. And recognizing they need to stay in that parental role. Exactly. That's got to be hard to do. How do grown women become victims when they have come from an ostensibly, I mean, certainly you can understand if a... You know, someone grew up and they were subject to sexual abuse, repeated sexual abuse. You can understand if they grew up in a household where basic necessities weren't always available. Um, But when you're talking about somebody from, again, what we would look at from the outside and consider a relatively
1: stable household, why would a grown woman fall prey to that? I think there's still some need that isn't being met for them. Um, so, whether it's maybe they're feeling isolated, maybe they're depressed, maybe their self esteem is low, there is something within them that is starving for, for whatever that is, whatever that need is. And, you know, a trafficker, again, knows who to target, um, can get to know someone very quickly to start to build that trust, figure out what that need is, and then they do whatever they can you know, to meet that need. I mean, we see most of the women in our program, the situation, the trafficking situation started out as a romantic relationship, where they actually groom them and take their time, and then get them to that point where they're doing things that they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't normally do.
0: So the trafficker comes in from a place of love. Exactly. And providing all those emotional, unmet emotional needs.
1: Exactly. And they consider that person to be their boyfriend. They do not look at them as, as a trafficker.
0: And so the trafficker then doesn't try to turn them into prostitution until they've gained control. Exactly. A Safe Place came into being in 2012, and we're, we're going to be going to break in, in just a second, and we'll have the next segment to get into all kinds of programs. But what do you see as the primary mission of this organization?
1: So our mission has always been to empower Uh, the women that are in our program to be the best person that they can be, Um, to be able to begin that path, that path to healing, and also uh, prevention. It's it's out there, it's teaching people, you know, what to look for. It's having an open discussion about trauma and just having a better understanding of all of that.
0: You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at how human trafficking affects the Cape Fear region. We'll be back in a moment after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. You are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Sex trafficking is alive and well in North Carolina. And specifically, in the southeastern part of the state, tourists looking for beautiful beaches, a large and transient military population, and proximity to two major interstates are just some of the reasons that North Carolina ranks ninth in the U.S. for human trafficking. With me today to help us understand the scope of the problem and how local folks are working with victims are two leaders of area nonprofits. Don Ferrer is executive director of A Safe Place. Don, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Leanna Stoker founded First Fruit Ministries with her husband, Rick, more than 20 years ago. While she is now executive director of the organization, she and her husband have been doing their own outreach since 1998. Leanna Stoker, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to have you with us. Tell us how you got involved in this work to begin with. Why, in the late 90s, were you and Rick Stoker going out into the streets? I had
2: just moved back from South America where I had been doing some international development work, and uh, Wilmington is my home. I grew up on Sunset Beach just south of here, and I've always had um, an interest in people. I want to hear their stories. I want to encounter them. People and culture fascinate me, and I was also an artist at the time doing photography, and I was just downtown, of course, engaging with people who were living outside just because I wanted to engage them and build relationships. It's really what drives me. But I can't start a relationship with you, see you in pain or hurting, and not do something about that. And so my approach to being out on the street is really just to engage with people because I find them interesting and lovely and, and
0: full of wonderful wisdom. And First Fruit Ministries serves a variety of different needs and and has a variety of different programs that goes beyond just victims of sex trafficking. But how specifically did you start recognizing that there was a need for women who are involved in... You actually use language a different way around this issue. You, You call it sex work rather than just victims of human trafficking.
2: Well, it's interesting. So I part of that interest in humanity overall is sort of it leads to a life on the edge, you could say. And um, there have been seasons where I've done all kinds of work. I grew up in a restaurant, so I've done lots of restaurant work. But I've also um, been homeless in the past. And uh, one time I had someone offer to help me get a job at um a strip club on Bourbon Street, and um, I've never done sex work, but I was a waitress, and I was surrounded by people who were in that world. And so to me, it wasn't coming from sort of more of a middle-class paradigm and wandering into a place where everyone looked like a victim. They were just my friends. And, And when you are that deeply enmeshed in a life, and people around you are making all different kinds of choices, you become very sensitive to the concept that trafficking and people being victimized is very, very real, but that is not everyone's scenario who maybe works in a strip club or does something like that type of work. And so for me, I've not approached the work from that direction. It's very much been a personal relationship and I don't actually find it all that important to judge whether someone is being victimized. Life is difficult. And in some ways, we could all find a place where we've been victimized or traumatized by the things that happen to us. The most important thing to me is not that identification. It's really the relationship that says, whatever your circumstance, if you don't want to be in that anymore, I am here to walk with you out of it. And because it's that straightforward to me, I just don't put a lot of time or emphasis into figuring out what the nuance is. Where's the fault? Where's the victim? Where's the blame? Those things don't actually matter to me that much. When I started doing street outreach, um, I was out in the camps with unsheltered folks. And when I would encounter women that were, you know, being trafficked, um, you know, I I just... It wasn't important to me to define their victimhood. It was important to me to offer a way out. We started doing housing for trafficking victims in 2000. So we started doing street outreach in 1998. And by 2000, we had built a home for women who were being trafficked because it was the most urgent need that we
0: could see on the streets. Don Ferrer of A Safe Place, you are a place where women who are escaping – from sexual slavery can come and be served. They can find refuge and they can, they can be guided into a different kind of life. Can you sort of take us through, I know there's not a typical client, not a typical case, everybody's so different, but if I was in that situation and I, how would I become connected with you in the first place? And then what would happen to allow me to be sheltered? a safe sure.
1: place. Um, The ways that people are referred to us or find us, um, it's through our hotline. It's through our jail outreach program, which we do on Fridays. It's through um, other organizations. They may have walked into another organization, and then they, that organization has identified that they are, um, you know, they have been exploited, so they'll refer them to us. Um, those are the primary ways. Sometimes somebody's just walking by and they've heard of us. Um, and they'll ring the doorbell and they'll come in. And then it's just a conversation with the case manager. Um, we meet them where they're at so that if they're not ready to share, they don't have to share. If really all they need is to take a shower, get some food, get some clothes, watch some TV, then that's something that they can do. You know, we want to make sure we don't re-traumatize them, so we don't, you know, we don't push them to share. It's mainly it's that first step hopefully to them building trust.
0: And what is Ex- again, using myself as an example, uh, just to keep it personal, what is expected of me if I go into your program? Are there different levels of programs or how does that work?
1: Yes. So as right now we do not have the shelter open. We're in the process of working on a new residential program. So there were certain things that were expected um, when they were staying at the shelter. As far as now, we call them outreach center members. and they are expected to see the therapist. They are expected to come to group on Wednesdays. We call it peer group. So it's when everyone's together. They're all at different stages. They can still be in the life. They can still be you know, using substances. None of that matters. You know, it's just for them to come and share you know, and be together and really build that emotional connection with each other. Um, our substance use counselor would have some expectations as far as going to meetings um, and finding a sponsor. So those are just some of the ones, some of the expectations.
0: but they don't have to be clean to no, be able to participate. They do not in the program. They do not. Are there any differences there, Leanna Stoker with first fruit ministries in terms of who can participate in the programs and and what you expect of those who partake of your services?
2: I would say that for our outreach centers, though we have different populations in the sense of we serve many more who are unsheltered, uh, we do have a Women's Day at the Outreach Center. And, you know, um, what Don was describing is so important. There are no barriers. There are no expectations. We will go. Ours is a little different. We will go pick you up. We will bring you to the the campus and provide services there. Um, but we also out, go out and meet you on the streets. Um, for our housing, um, Don mentioned that their housing isn't open currently. Um, so for us, our housing, we don't... Our housing for trafficking victims we have to identify that you are a trafficking victim. Now we have different housing programs depending on your needs so if you are doing harm reduction or you don't have any desire to uh, reduce your substance use or you know participate in recovery then that's fine we'll put you in an independent housing unit.
0: Um, if you and are when it, sorry, when you talk about that harm reduction, for instance, you're talking about people who are getting, say, clean needles provided by, I mean, what do you mean by harm reduction? So in, in this sense, I think probably the most important
2: element of harm reduction would be someone who wants to try to use less, so instead of using every day, I'm gonna to try to hold out and see if a couple of times that week and I can go maybe two days, something like that, where it's, it's just reducing the usage overall. It may be uh, improving the safety of your usage. Um, but if it's someone who has not identified a personal goal of recovery, then our housing opportunities are going to be off campus because we have a campus where we don't allow um, drug use in our residential programs. But we have residential programs for people who are in active substance use. We just, it's not the same housing. So if you are a man or any gender other than female, if you are actively using substances, or if you are a family, we will provide housing that is gonna be off campus. And then the housing that is on campus is for single women who are uh, either don't have any issue of substance use or are in recovery. And even if you're in recovery, part of recovery is relapse. So just because you've relapsed doesn't mean that you're not in our housing program anymore. It just means that we're gonna we're gonna readdress your goals. And you can change. If you decide recovery is not your goal, you tried it, you just feel like it's not the time that this is what you want to do, then we can we can move you. And that actually happens. I won't say frequency, but maybe fifteen, twenty percent of the time. And so you don't get kicked out of our housing program. We identify a unit that is more conducive to the personal goals that you have set. And I will mention one thing um, that Dawn talked about is their therapist. I have to say their outreach campus services are really extraordinary. A lot of our clients use the uh, trauma therapist that they have at a safe place at their outreach center, and she is really incredible. The clients just rave about her services. So there's a lot of collaboration with that, and it's really important to to do the things that you do well, to share them
0: with the other clients that are in need. Right. Dawn, you mentioned uh, jail outreach, Mm -hmm. and we're recording this on a Friday. So this morning, you would have spent at the jail. Correct. What do you do when you go to the jail? What what does that look like?
1: Um, So we do a few things. Um, Obviously, I talk about a safe place and let them know what our services are. Um, Everyone takes the ACEs questionnaire, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire, and I do a quick individual discussion with them to let them know what their score means so they have a better understanding of all this childhood trauma and how that has impacted them and some of those choices that they've made. Um, We usually talk about a topic. Today it was abandonment um, and having attachment issues. Um, I bring adult coloring books. I'm the coloring book lady. That's what they call me. <laughs> so they color while we talk, and they open up. I mean, sometimes they admit things that they say that they've never admitted to anyone else before. So it's really become, you know, literally a safe place for them. And it also gives them hope that there's people out there that care. Um, you know, that they'll that will be there for them. You know, when they are released.
0: And that's part of what you're doing is building that relationship so that when they're ready to be released, they- We're
1: there. We are there for them. Absolutely.
0: And how, once someone comes out of a prison term or jail- Mm -hmm. What's next for them? How do you help them transition? So,
1: all right, so unfortunately we don't, again, we don't have the shelter right now, Um, but what we do have, we have a supportive housing program. The majority of these individuals do struggle with substance use. So what that looks like is we will match them up with a a local recovery house, pay for three months um, for them to stay there, and then once they complete that program, we'll pay their first month's rent and security deposit. And really, the only requirements that they have to meet is they need to meet with their case manager once a week. They need to meet with the certified alcohol and drug counselor once a week. We encourage therapy. Um, that's where We're not forcing that, but we are encouraging them um, to see the therapist. Um, and then to just spend time, spend time at the outreach center.
0: We're talking with Don Ferrer of A Safe Place and Leanna Stoker of First Fruit Ministries about the issue of human trafficking in the Cape Fear region. This, on the outside of it, and I know, Leanna, you talked about being fascinated by cultures and um, street life, I guess, for lack of a better word, it's sure. broad stroke, uh, doesn't scare you. But it seems like with all the trauma that the two of you encounter in people— and with all the relapsing, I mean, there have to be times when you see someone that you've been working with getting better and getting better, and then suddenly they crash and they're back in the life or they're back using substances or, or both. How do you stay out of the darkness yourself? I mean, how do you keep yourself kind of psychologically healthy when you're immersed in this all the time?
2: Don, I'll let Let you go
1: first. Um, One important thing is my staff is a team. And, excuse me, we are constantly talking about these kinds of things. Um, You know, they can come to me and express those feelings of being upset because they've been working with that person. That person was doing so well. And then they took those two steps back. So it is, it's all of us working together. It's finding things that we enjoy doing, you know, and I encourage our staff to, you know, make sure their self-care is, is good because it is. You know, with the trauma they've been through, with the substance use, the trauma of the exploitation, you know, these women are dealing with a lot, which therefore my staff end up having to deal with a lot. But I think that the bright spot is we are planting seeds. So even if they weren't ready, we have planted that seed that we are we are here for them, and then we just hope that they come back.
0: Leanna, how do you deal with it? I
2: will say that I don't really set expectations on people, so I don't necessarily feel disappointed when things take a left turn. When a client is going in a healthy direction and they all of a sudden turn around and walk back toward where they were trying to get away from, I just see that as part of their journey. And this may sound cliche, but I can look back at my own life and say, I know how many times the Lord called me and I just, I just, I take one step forward and then I turn around and walk away. And, And if he can consistently pursue me with his unconditional love, then I know he's doing it for the people that we serve. And and that sounds like a religious answer, but honestly, that is the truth of how I really don't get discouraged by that sort of thing. I just have this complete faith that the Lord is pursuing them. And and when you encounter that kind of unconditional love, it changes you. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So I don't feel any judgment. And I I honestly just accept it as this is the work that we do. Dawn was so right when she said that you have to have your staff really practice good uh, mental health habits. I think that that's very important. You know, we don't have a huge staff, but we are very tight, and we spend time together and we share, and we, we really spend a lot of time praying together. And then we, you know, we go out and we do the work, and we just encourage
0: each other. I just think you can't ever have enough encouragement. Don Ferrer of A Safe Place, if—, if if you could leave folks with kind of one changed perception of this issue, if there's one thing that you just, you run into this all the time and you're just like, ah, if people only understood this, it would it would make this so much easier, what would that be? What do you want people to know?
1: I think one thing that comes to mind is that the trafficking we see here is not happening through the port. So that is one misconception that I, I would like to change. Um, it is, you know, it, it, a lot of times it is starting out as that romantic relationship. So it's just having a better understanding of where it's happening because it's happening everywhere. It isn't just happening on Market Street in those hotels, it's in residential communities. Um, and then also change their perception of who these individuals are and look at them as a person because it could be their daughter, their sister, their cousin, um, a friend, it could be a neighbor, um, and they need to treat them equally and treat them with respect, and have a better understanding of that they are a product of their, you know, of their life experiences, and they deserve our compassion.
0: You talked about kids locking themselves in their own rooms at night as being a potential red flag for a parent. We just have a few seconds here, but what are some of the red flags that you would say people in the general public can keep an eye out for, not just for kids, but perhaps a woman who might be a victim of yeah. human Um
1: It could be a group of younger women traveling with an older male. Um, It could be both adults and minors just dressing very provocatively and the setting just isn't appropriate, Um, obviously showing signs of physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, development of substance use, and just kind of being around a controlling person.
0: You're listening to Coastline. Don Ferrer, Executive Director of A Safe Place, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: When we come back after this short break, we'll continue our exploration with Leanna Stoker of First Fruit Ministries. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Leanna Stoker and her husband, Rick Stoker, created First Fruit Ministries in 1998 to serve unsheltered people, as well as victims of domestic violence and sex trafficking victims, and pretty much anyone living on the street or in need of basic necessities like food. Now, Leanna Stoker, you also have a food pantry as part of First Fruit. Like other nonprofits, and I, I learned recently, there are so many of them that are helping people with food insecurity, which seem to have spiked during the pandemic. And some of these uh, pantries are saying they haven't seen the need drop off; rather, they're seeing it continue to grow. What are you seeing with yours, and and who uses your pantry? I'll
2: tell you a funny story. So it was never my intention to have a food pantry, because you're absolutely correct. There are, let's call it a gracious plenty in this region. Uh, But in 2000, we opened a home for trafficking victims, and it had a front porch. And we were on Cowan Street, which no longer really exists, but it was the north fourth area of town. And at the time, the Taylor Homes uh, housing projects uh, were in existence there. Now, they were at the time the oldest housing projects in North Carolina. They've since been torn down. Um, But we prayed for the Lord to provide food because we had no money and we needed to feed our residents. And we had such an overabundance of food, we started giving it away off the front porch of that house to all the residents who lived in Taylor Homes. And we got so much that we used to just bag it up and start carrying it through neighborhoods and dropping off groceries, like grocery fairies, I don't know. And that then grew into what is, I think we are the largest pantry in probably three counties. I know that we have for long seasons been the food bank's largest customer. So we have about 1,200 people that eat from our food pantry every single week. Uh, We open three days a week. And I will say that we did a drive-through service when COVID happened and there was distancing Uh, We have one particular day that's called Mondays are for Moms, where we also give out diapers and formula and baby wipes and that sort of thing. So we try to do certain times where there are specialty items. Um, I have seen that our population, it may have increased some, but I don't think it's been a dramatic increase. But I think that the people who are using the service, I see much more families, particularly mothers with small children.
0: Now, you've mentioned a couple of times your faith, and you've talked about praying to have some needs met, and you talk about the Lord as being a source sometimes of meeting those needs and a source of unconditional love. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigate that with people who are not Christian or even people who don't consider God in any way, shape, or form, whether Christian, Jewish, uh, Muslim, or any of the other possible religions in the world, does that get in the way sometimes of your work? That's a great question. the The
2: drive, the reason why we do what we do, is very personal. It's very internal. uh, It's individualized, and. We are a Christian ministry in the sense that the driving force for us as people who do this work is that we have been loved and so we pour out that love on other people. So, from the perspective of someone that we're serving, they may or may not know what drives us, what our motivation is. They may not have any clue that we are Christians or that. Uh, we feel like we are sharing something that's been freely given to us um, because we, we love the Lord. So from the perspective of someone who's using our services, they, they may never know that. They may just know that we're kind people, that we're judgmental, that we're accepting, that we're generous or caring. Um, so it doesn't really get in the way of our services. Interestingly, we get uh, very examined by funders or supporters or the public in general, who have a great suspicion around it, and that's understandable. That's really understandable. And I don't ever mind asking—I mean, answering questions to to funders or donors or anyone that volunteers um, about our faith, but also letting them know, like, all are welcome here. There's no there's no sense that you are other or less than, or somehow excluded from a private group, Uh, when you come to volunteer at the ministry or you come to get services, all you know is that these people are kind, they care about me, and they want to be in relationship
0: with me, and they're generous. Is converting people to Christianity part of the mission?
2: No, not at all, actually. Uh, which is I suppose interesting now that you asked me that question. No, <laughs> it's it's never been my intention or desire to go out. Uh, i'm I'm not naturally an evangelist, so to speak. It's not really part of what I do. I hope that when you encounter the unconditional love of God, that you will start asking questions and start pursuing truth and and it says that when you seek, you'll find, But you have to do the seeking, and you you will do the finding. And really, my desire is to just love other people well. So that really isn't part of our mission. It's not part of what we do. We're very much focused on just building relationships
0: that are full of kindness. It's interesting because you didn't come into your adult life as a Christian, or I guess what you would describe as a person of faith that came later, and you you describe this as sort of a, a transcendent moment almost. Can you talk about <laughs> this thing I'm that, that you say happened to you?
2: Yes. So I was not a believer uh, in Jesus. I did not uh, want anything to do with the church overall or Christianity in general. I was uh, very much... Um, someone who just thought, you know, so much of the ill and uh, let's call it bad behavior in the world was driven by this sort of um, religious self-righteousness, if you want to call it that. So I would would be the last person that you would have found in a Christian circle. Um, And actually, so uh, Rick has been a believer since his early 20s. And so when I met him on the street, he invited me to come to one of their uh, street church services, which he was doing outreach before I met him on the streets. And so I, as a photographer, wanted to come and take pictures. And I chuckle now because I think in my very anti-Christian head, I had I was like, oh, I'll take it. It'll be like, you know, the inner circle, you know, I don't know. Snakes, or I do I, whatever these people do. I want to go take pictures, I'm fascinated, you know. And um, so uh, I show up with my camera and start taking pictures. And you know, clearly there were no snakes, although I, I was rather disappointed in the <laughs> moment. But but there were just people that were just praising the Lord. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll take pictures. And it was all people that were living outside that had come together for a dinner and a worship service. And I came a couple of Thursdays to uh, take pictures. And without anyone speaking to me or anyone talking to me about the Lord, I just went to go take photos. Um, I had an encounter with the Lord. I mean, it was so clear to me. I could describe every detail. But the bottom line was that I heard the Lord so clear. I've never heard a voice this clear. Just tell me that, that he is who he says he is. And I didn't want to admit that to anyone for weeks. I wrestled with it. I was like, oh, no, like the worst thing I could be as a Christian. Like, this is terrible. Um, but I I finally had to accept what I knew to be true and just, I mean, I just honestly, I told the Lord. I was like, Jesus, if you don't tell me to do it, I'm not doing it. I don't want to be part of the church. I don't want to be called a Christian. I don't want to do any of this. It's just you and me and whatever you say goes. But everything else, forget it. And that was really my attitude. Um, and I was 24.
0: We're talking with Leanna Stoker, executive director and co-founder of First Fruit Ministries in Wilmington. You mentioned that potential donors and people who you encounter during your fundraising efforts often have questions about uh, the faith that's part of this organization. What kinds of questions do they ask? Because it's understandable, especially, you know, given the uh, The focus on separation of church and state, and if if the government tends to be funding any of this, then the public has a right to know how much Christianity, or you know, whatever particular religious flavor is is uh, coloring the work that's happening. so how do you how do you address concerns from donors about that? And what do you get asked?
2: Well, from from more government funders and uh, grantors, they want to be very clear that we are not requiring uh, clients who receive our services to participate in any religious activities, and rightfully so. I. I that is so outside of how we see the world that it wouldn't even occur to anyone in our organization that we would require you to listen to a gospel message or attend a church service before you could get something. Like that's that's completely outside of who we are. Um, but rightfully so, donors do ask those questions and we make it clear that the motivation for us is our faith, but that that doesn't translate to any requirements for anyone um And then I will say you know there are some donors who want to be sure that we are Christians and that our work aligns with um, the tenets of of the Christian faith and and we are we are Christ-centered in, in every way and we you know we get a lot of pressure from certain circles to take ministries out of our name which is I find very interesting um, because they they fear that it will make people who are not, Christians shy away from us, and that could be a price that we're paying that we don't even know. But I just accept that. I am who I am. We are who we are. I don't need anyone that receives our services to do anything at all. Just receive love. Receive the generosity of the Lord as He pours it out on you. And if He pours it out on you through me, and I never say His name, you've still received that goodness. And that's really my passion. So I will say that the questions are are fine and and welcomed. We do actually get asked to certify in writing very often uh, that we do not require anyone to participate in anything religious before they can receive services, but I'm happy to sign that.
0: You do cover a pretty broad spectrum. Of needs for people, as we've talked about in terms of housing of different kinds and helping people escape from traffickers and uh, supporting people who are maybe living on the edge a little bit, struggling with substance abuse. When you think about the greatest need right now in the community or where the need is growing, what is that?
2: Housing 100% all day long, housing. Affordable housing is a crisis. And it's a crisis for a lot of people, not just people that are unsheltered or, or being trafficked. But I will say, if there is nowhere else to go, staying in a place that is traumatizing and unhealthy and spending all of your time trying to rationalize it and somehow make it through another day of it is
0: a lot of people's reality. And what do you – can you give us an example of that, rationalizing staying in a situation – are you talking about a domestic violence situation where a woman might stay because she doesn't have the means to, to pay for shelter on her own, or how do you see that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we we had a, an issue recently. There was a woman, who was being trafficked, um, by someone who held a lot of power. They were, um, an official, uh, not in not in this town. Please don't don't mistake me. But this was in another town. Um, and she had a young daughter, and we had to work really hard to figure out her housing situation because she had continued to stay with this trafficker and just tell herself in so many ways, um, you know, he, he's respected by the community, so he must be okay. Um, Maybe I'm just making this up in my head. There's sort of like this gaslighting that happens Mm -hmm. where you continue to question what's really going on, and you can press into that in a lot of ways. You know, many a woman who has been abused in her home um, takes the flowers the next morning and tells herself what a good guy he is. And we just try to forget what happened the night before and all of the trauma that we experienced. And and I find that to be universal. Um, Whether you're being trafficked or experiencing domestic violence, um, I find that we can lie to ourselves in incredibly creative ways to try to be okay. The pursuit of survival is, it's universal and it is tenacious. And we will do all kinds of things to survive in our situation. And sometimes that strategy looks a lot like lying to ourselves because we recognize pretty quickly that getting out could be worse than staying when you think of, well, now I'm going to be living outside. There's no protection at all. And I won't even have a roof over my head at night. So you feel like you're making it worse when there's no housing options,
0: and so you stay. And that is an incredibly common scenario. And so what would you say if there was a woman listening right now and she's in that situation? What's her first step if she wants to get out?
2: At the very least, make the call and start a safety plan. Maybe you're not ready to say, I'm running out the door this second, but there's a lot of distance and there's a lot of work that we can do between the day I'm ready to run and the day that I call. And so don't underestimate the amount of help that you can get in between, and you will be surprised that the doors that open when you start to care for yourself and love yourself enough to do just the next one thing to help yourself. So if you make a call, you know, we can work on safety planning.
0: And we will have all of those resources with this episode at whqr.org. That's this edition of Coastline. Leanna Stoker of First Fruit Ministries, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks also to Don Ferrer of A Safe Place. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. You can find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by or send an email to coastline. at whqr.org. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.